there. Get ready to listen to the affairs of the black diasporas. You are about to learn, live, and enjoy life lessons we black people have experienced throughout history. Welcome to Unlocking Our Voices, where we seek to unify the black diasporas, eradicate inequality, racial profiling, and the general lack of respect. Let's open our mouths and minds with your host, Greg Fuller. Hello to all our listeners from the Black Diasporas and around the world. Thanks for tuning into another episode. I am your amazing host, Greg Fuller. Now, in our last three episodes or so, we have given much attention to the continent of Africa. Now, I have deliberately done so because Africa's time is now to break free from all Western hegemonic control. And in a joint statement recently, the governments of Burkina Faso and Mali, which were once French colonies, warned that any military intervention against Niger would be tantamount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. <laughs> and so I was so proud to, when I read um, the, the statement, right, I was, I, was, I was extremely proud to see African nations were standing up to the West. And in previous weeks and in other months, we saw South Africa, Kenya, Zimbabwe, um, Rwanda, and to some degree, Ghana taking a stand, a stance um, um, to announce that their sovereignty would not be violated anymore by Europe or the United States. Now, it is good to see African nations rising and unlocking their voices. And as you know, unlocking our voices focus specifically on the black diaspora, the culture, the people, their stories, their issues, injustices, and the varying measures used to prolong our oppression and marginalization. Is Western feminism dangerous to African women? As a young woman who was born in West Africa and has lived in South Africa for 13 years, the term feminism remains uncharted waters for many. It is rebellious, seen as taboo, and in my home country, Cameroon, it is a word that every mother hopes to never hear her daughter say, because it either means she hates men, men hate her, or she'll end up not getting married. But why? What does feminism mean to African women? Is feminism un-African? But most importantly, is feminism dangerous to the safety and empowerment of African women? Yes, is Western feminism dangerous to African culture, values, and beliefs? And so you just heard a small clip from a TED Talk that was done, I believe, probably a year ago that was focusing on feminism. And so since we are um, continue on the African continent, I thought that to focus this episode on looking at feminism on African culture. And so today's episode will be the center of our discussion 
on today's Unlocking Our Voices. And so for those who are new, I like to remind our new listeners that Unlocking Our Voices aim is to connect peoples of the Black diasporas in new and exciting ways, equipping them with the tools, the platform, and access that allows them to trace their history and also point to how an understanding of the past influences the very present that they live in, ultimately impressing upon them that they hold the keys to shaping their own future by way of dialogue and working together and by means of face-to-face or virtual constructive conversation. We seek to evolve and enhance ourselves spiritually, mentally, socially, politically, and economically. Now, today we have a guest that consider herself a radical feminist from Namibia, right? She is a 23-year-old German studies and a clinical psychology study at the University of Namibia. And she will be joining us on the show today. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of, you know, this discussion, this episode, I do want to give some small historical background on the country of Namibia. I've never visited Namibia before, but I do hope in the near future that I will visit Namibia in the near future. In November of 2019, Namibia had its election as it always has since independence from South Africa in 1990. Since then, Namibia has been a multi-party democracy. But for the first time, the Southwest Africa People's Organization, the SWAPO, which had been the ruling party for 25 years at the time of the election in November of 2019, for the first time saw a decrease in electoral support. The Southwest Africa's People's Organization lost its two-third parliamentary majority, and for the first time, its presidential candidate received less votes than the party with a decline of 30%. The new landless people's movement, the LPM, became the third strongest party after the People's Democratic Movement, the PDM, which as the official opposition recorded a strong increase. So what does this mean for the Republic of Namibia, a country that is sparsely populated, situated along the South Atlantic coast of Africa? Well, at least what it sounds to me is that change is coming to Namibia. 
on the political spectrum. This African nation, for those who don't know, is, the, is in the southwestern part of the continent. It shares borders with Botswana to the east, Angola to the north, Zambia on its northeast, South Africa to the southeast, and the Atlantic Ocean to the west. It was once a colony of Germany from 1884 with the infamous Berlin Conference that partitioned Africa up among European nations. However, after the First European World War, the League of Nations gave South Africa a mandate to administer the territory. It's interestingly, though, to see that African nations did not gain their independence even though they fought to help defeat Germany in two wars. But the map of Europe was reshaped with independent states emerging, particularly in Eastern Europe, after the First European World War. While much of Africa was starting to decolonize in the late 1950s, black South Africa under white minority rule was allowed to keep the yoke on the necks of 2.5 million black Namibians until 1990. And so Namibia is a free an independent nation to this day. And since its independence, Namibia has enshrined in their constitution protections for civil liberties. However, minority ethnic groups have accused the governments of favoring the majority. Human rights concerns include police brutality, the criminalization of same-sex relationships and discrimination against women. In addition, there's report that the nomadic sand people suffer from marginalization and poverty. And so in today's episode, I want to focus on some of those issues. And this is one of the reasons why we have this young lady on our show today to discuss some of these varying issues that is going on. But also our conversation will be centered on what we call here in the West and throughout much of the world, the rise of feminism or feminism movement or black radical feminism, whatever definition you want to give. And so we're going to look at that and we're going to have a very healthy discussion and to look and to see how does feminism, radical feminism, black feminism ties into the collectiveness of the black diaspora and its empowerment. I'm a black feminist, capital B, capital F. I'm unapologetically black and I'm unapologetically a feminist. And look, depending on what circles you're in, it's hard to be both those things at the same time. But I think that being both those things is the thing that will save us. If time had a race, it would be white. 
white people feel like they own time and control history. And there's a way that even if you go back to the early Western philosophers that everybody love, uh, my least favorite is George Hegel. And so today's guest is a student that attend the University of um, Namibia. She majors in German studies and in clinical psychology. She is a member of the Namibian National Student Students Organization, an organization that was founded in 1984, working for quality, equitable, and accessibility um, in education in Namibia. She's also has held numerous leadership roles, including chairperson of the National Secretary of Gender and Social Welfare, and is now the current deputy of the Secretary of um, General uh, of this organization. She prides herself as a radical feminist and is also a proud author of the book called what About Us, which speaks to her experience as a survivor of sexual abuse and a queer black woman. And with that being said, I would like to welcome our guests to Unlocking Our Voices. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. I appreciate you join, joining Unlocking Our Voices. So if you can just um, state your name for our listeners here in the United States and in the rest of the world. Uh, my name is Thrive Vinomandiro Mahwa. I am a 23-year-old Namibian. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, and an activist. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, ma'am. And I, I would like to say that <laughs> it's a pleasure and it's an honor to have individuals such as yourself on our platform to talk about the issues, the joy, and the different perspectives mm -hmm. um, from our Black diasporas people around the world. Now, as you and I have been in, in conversation, and as you know, our program aims is to elevate the vision and mission of its right excellent Marcus Messiah Garvey, a Jamaican-born mm -hmm. black nationalist and leader of the Pan-Africanism movement, which highlighted the common grounds between people of African descent across the world and aimed to unify and connect black people. And this is one of the reasons why also I have reached out to you, um, I think a few weeks ago, we had uh, a brother from South Africa. I talked about the land issues and, you know, the various political issues going on there in South Africa. And, you know, I thought, okay, you know, let's continue this trend looking across the African continent and to have individuals on this mm -hmm. platform to discuss what is going on in their struggles. So it is nice to have you on our show and for us to introduce you to the American, the Caribbean, the Latin American audience. And so welcome to Unlocking Our Voices. Mm -hmm. Now, for, for us, I've never traveled to Namibia. So let's, let's talk about Namibia. What, what's your country like? You know, it's beach, the weather, the people, the food, and so forth. Okay, so Namibia is in the southwestern part of Africa. Um, we have a very beautiful and diverse country. We 
have both the ocean and the desert, and they meet one another. Um, we have a very small population, a population of 2.5 million people, okay. and a vast area of land. Um, I'll tell you how many square meters it is, but it's huge, and there's enough all of us in Tondonot, all of us own. Okay. It's still being owned by the... Um, like, yeah. um, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, Namibia <laughs> has over 13 ethnicities, with um, English being the main language. Um, I am from one of the ethnicities. I am Herero. I'm coming from over Herero. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I speak the language as well as English and other languages. Um, the food in Namibia, our table is, of course, porridge. Um, in my culture, we eat the porridge with um, soured milk, which we refer to as omaire. But a very important part of my culture is also meat, mm. um, beef meat. Particularly, Hereros are known for eating and indulging meat. Namibians in general, we love our meat, we love our beef. <laughs> and Namibia is also one of the hugest export, um, exporters of beef in, in the world. Um, what else is there in terms of, I mean, the cultures, they overlap one another, even as a hetero. Um, I even live with somebody from another ethnicity. We are so connected with one another and we are able to understand each other's languages and each other's cultures to a certain um, extent. So it's a very, very beautiful country with many animals and many tourists. A lot of tourists like to visit Namibia because they sort of refer to the safe part of Africa, so right. to say, in quotation marks, mm-hmm. um, especially people from Germany, because Namibia has a um, colonial background with Germany, right. so a lot of German tourists. Okay. And tourists come and visit the country every year, which makes up a huge part of our economy, a huge part of our jobs are um, in the uh, tourist industry okay so well that's interesting i mean you know when i was in 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 south africa and um you talk about the wildlife and you know i was i was able to see some wildlife in south africa and i remember um because i i I went to the university of um, rhodes university i had to do a lecture there Mm -hmm. and this was a couple years ago and you know every night we used to go oh um, Tovra and I, we used to go to the bar and drink. And um, I think he <laughs> had ordered um, wild meat or something. I don't know if it was deer or mm-hmm. something, but it was a different type of meat because, uh, you know, it was burger. Mm-hmm. But the meat was so different <laughs> from the meat from mm-hmm. the, the state. It actually tasted like meat, like, you know, fresh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like good stuff. You know, um, but it was yes. a massive, a massive burger with, you know, not beef. You know, I think uh, I, I forgot what animal it was, but it wasn't it wasn't beef, though, but it was similar to beef, um, which was quite mm. interesting. And, you know, and I, I do hope to visit Namibia, as I said, in the near future. Now, my, so what was your experience like growing up um, in Namibia? Because um South Africa was, you know, once occupied um, Namibia. And as you know, in terms of South Africa and the apartheid regime and how blacks um, were treated in South Africa, with South Africa being an occupied country in Namibia, Mm. you weren't born in apartheid, but what has your life been, um, been like in Namibia, born... Post apartheid. 
Okay. Um, so Namibia gained its independence from the South African apartheid regime in 1990. Um, so that is like 10 years before I was born. Right. And when, uh, of course, parents had, or my parents particularly, um, experienced the apartheid regime, went to school in the apartheid regime. Mm. And me, myself, as I grew up, my parents then... Um, sent me to German schools or sent me and my brother to German schools. So um, in these German systems is then where we completed our education or our basic education, which is, of course, when your parents are sending you to these white schools, they do they do it because they are trying to get you um, affluent opportunities. They want to make sure that they maximize mm. um, whatever opportunities life can do. But at the same time, Greg, um, it, even within those schools, there is very clearly, at the time when we were coming, I think that was the first, um, around the first years when black children were now entering white schools. Mm. Um, so while you are in the schools with these white children and in a post-apartheid country almost 10, 15 years later, there is still a very clear divide of um, the white children and the black children. Mm. It's almost like you are, you are near the 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 elite, so to say. I'm going to say refer right. to them as that. The but you can't really access their worlds, you know, mm-hmm. because there's so many resources and so many things that they have that you do not have. So many opportunities that they can access that you cannot access. Right, right. So while you're living in their world, you're living as almost a second class citizen in mm. their world. And of course, to our parents, because, for instance, my mother grew up, uh, my grandfather was a bishop, was very prominent in the um, uh, liberation struggle. Um, And my father's family was also involved. Everybody's family was involved at that time. So they grew up in um, abject poverty. They were 10, 20 children under a roof trying to Mm. live through going to the whatever schools they can access, trying to get whatever they can, whatever job they can and whatever. So, of course, our parents wanted to make sure that we had better. Um, But also while we were having or getting better, we were still um, treated somewhat not the same as as the white children, even though we were in the same spaces, even though we were in the same classes, even though we were getting the same grades, even though you could speak their languages, you were still... Uh, it was still very clear that they were here and you were there. You, you, you know, just, you know, listening to you talk and let's reflect back, you know, reflecting back here in, in the States, in the United States. And I think what you're talking about in terms of privilege and in terms of education, when you look at in the United States, mm. black people, black Americans, um, if they mm-hmm. are in a predominantly black neighborhood or so forth, they don't get the same quality of education as mm-hmm. if you were living in the suburbs where white folks live. Yeah. And so we see this pattern, yeah. right? And, and, and that's why it's important for us as black people to connect with each other, to know what's going mm-hmm. on in, in, in your country, in Namibia, in South Africa, in Ghana, yeah. and understanding the yes. interconnection Ever since the minority mm. culture of the world, Europeans have gained contact with other mm. human beings. And the, the system of classism and racism, well, not so much classism, but racism that they set up. And it is because of mm. this structure of racism that has deprived the black masses of people, no matter if they're in Jamaica, no matter if they're in the United States, no matter if they're in Latin America, 
they are still not given the same quality of life, the same quality of education. Now, so why didn't the government, right? They gain independence, right? We, they, they gain independence from South Africa. And I believe that the political party at the time or still at the time is the SWAPO. Why didn't the government set up a policy or set up constitution in which they didn't create a more equal and just society now that we see black majority have power in Namibia? I wish I had the answer to that because, and, and it's very important what you're saying because it is true when, even when we look at the quality of education, because while we were in these um, white schools, you, we had cousins or sisters who were in other schools, um, mm-hmm. which were now in the hoods or in in other towns which were were black towns and the quality of education was completely different the things that we were taught in the white schools were completely different from what the other children were taught in their schools and we we asked we were still expected to compete on the same levels and write the same and um, with that, of course, there's this disparity. And as the years went by, of course, um, in 2016, Mm -hmm. um, basic education became um, universal, became free, which also meant that it was allowed to access whatever schools besides the private schools, of course, in the country. So um, (laughs) let me interrupt you. I'm I'm, I'm laughing here because you, you said education on the university level becomes free, right? That that is that not ju- university, not the university education um, from the- grades one up till twelve. Okay. So from your elementary school up until your matriculate. Okay, um, I became free. Okay, that's good. That's good to know. So university is a little bit different because I thought you said the universities were free in Namibia, and I'm like, wait a minute. If universities are free in Namibia, oh, we don't have a university free here yeah. in the states. <laughs> So, that is the dream, greatest dream. <laughs> that, is, that, <laughs> is, that is the dream. Now, let's get on some, um, some, some, some other uh, other topic. Now, um, you consider yourself a radical feminist, and um, and so forth. So, my question to you is: Western feminism dangerous to African cultures and values? Okay. <laughs> Western fem- when we refer to it as Western feminism, I think uh, the feminism that was then brought up in the 1970s in the States with white women, um, you know, standing up against their husbands saying that we want to vote, we want to have access to work, we want to have access to our bank accounts and so forth. And that kind of empowerment that took place in um, the States and then the Europe is completely different from African feminism okay. because our are not the same. Okay. Um, the things that we are fighting for are completely different because we do not live in equal worlds, so to say, because our plight in Africa is, number one, still trying to get more girls to have access to education, okay. so trying to get uh, more women into you know, these male-dominated Mm-hmm. areas of work and our things are also based on violence you know sexual violence physical violence a lot of women in africa face so much violence and it's not to take away from the experiences of the western feminists but um in africa there's a lot of on-hand violence mm-hmm. in our homes that have 
only known um, abuse their entire lives. So I, while I think maybe Western feminism, if we quote it like that, is a completely different notion. Okay. But African feminism, um, the way that we are, are trying to push forward to make sure that there's equal access to opportunities, there's equal access to funding, there's equal access to everything, is... is I think it's more, how do I explain it in a different way? I think it's, it's a little bit more uh, bread and butter, so to okay. say. A little bit more life and death. Um, a little bit more to do with uh, the have and the have-nots. The difference between being able to access an opportunity and not being able to do so. Being able to access contraceptives and not being able to do so. Being able to access an abortion and not being able to do so. <laughs> And I do not think that in itself is is a danger to African culture and values because we've seen a lot of our mothers and a lot of our grandmothers, even as they are raising us, raise us with that notion of you need to be more, you need to do more, you need to go and get an education, you need to go and do this, you need to go and do that. And in African cultures at its base, women uh, were not permitted to be educated, were not permitted to go and work outside their homes. They were only supposed to be um, at home taking care of the family, taking care of the crops, and, and that's the beginning and end of our African woman's life. So I think African feminism, even with our mothers, asks or tells us or pushes us to go and take on the world in a different sense from what they have known and what they have experienced. And I do not think that is a threat to our cultures. Okay. Now, but, yeah, and, and the reason why I ask you, so, but in the Constitution, there's protection of civil um, liberties, right? Um, do various segments of the population, including ethnic, racial, religious, gender, or the LGBT um, and other relevant groups, have full political rights and um, electoral opportunities um, in, 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 in Namibia? You, you mentioned um, that women are treated a certain way and discriminated against, and they don't have access to certain things because of their gender. But the Constitution, mm. it's, it's, it's enshrined in the Constitution in terms of protection okay. of civil liberties. Well, culture. Culture, <laughs> culture okay. is a little bit... Um, yes, culture has uh, honestly held uh, Namibia back in certain ways, especially mm. in where... When, when we look at particularly, Greg, violence against women and children, mm-hmm. um, and then we have also access to reproductive health care. And then at the same time, we also have, uh, when we talk about equal rights in terms mm-hmm. of LGBTQ persons being able to marry and receive marital uh, privileges mm-hmm. as, as, you know, heterosexual people are able to, the majority of those problems are rooted mm-hmm. or guised under the um, notion of our culture does not permit it. Or even if it's not referred to as our culture does not permit it, it's then Christianity does not permit mm. it. And we are a Christian. We are maybe not, not to the extent that people think that we are, because uh, the last time we had a census was in 2011. Right. And that census concluded that overnight, of Namibians were Christian. So there's this false notion that 
uh, you know, the majority of the population is Christian. So we need to work with Christian values and Christian uh, ethics and so forth. And so many times these notions are oppressive to certain groups, oppressive to women, oppressive to LGBTQ persons, um, oppressive in this way that you cannot access certain things because you know, you're a woman, you can't go get an abortion because the law doesn't permit it. Because, mm. And if you say you want to kill the law, it's a matter of, no, we are a Christian country that is not in our values, that is not in our culture, we're not going to do that. Wow. So, so yes, the constitution is supreme in, in, the way, in the way that it is, you, you know, but they still, you have a majority of the leaders who mm-hmm. think in this, and, and I, for lack of better word, in this back way, you know, this right. old-fashioned, outdated way. And that is what they use to uphold these uh, these oppressions. Wow. So even though the, the Constitution protects civil liberties, culturally, mm. we see they behave in a different way, um, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, mm. it's, it's interesting because here in the United States, we have you know, a movement going on here. You know, you have the conservatives here, you have the 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 left, um, the left and the right. And in our in in the United States, I was just about to say in our country, no, in the United States, <laughs> in the United States, <laughs> the Supreme Court had overturned um, um, Roe versus Wade, which has to do with abortion. And so we see that it appears that the United States and the court is moving more right than left. Um, and, you know, many conservative wants to go back to a certain 1930s, I should say. And, you know, but, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite shocking. It's quite, it's quite um, um, interesting to hear, you know, to hear what you're saying. And, so with, 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 with that being said, um, do individuals enjoy, um, well, I'm assuming that individuals, based on what you just said, that they don't enjoy the same level of equality or freedom um, depending on their sex. Yes. And so as it pertains to the economy, um, do female get exploited? Well, f- I would say female and children, do they get um economically exploited more than other groups? Um, absolutely. Uh, let's look at child labor, especially in the northern parts of Namibia. It mm-hmm. borders with the Angolan country. Right. Uh, so we have a real predicament with child labor in the northern parts of Namibia where we have families, and because there are so many farmers and mm-hmm. you know uh, small-scale farmers in the northern parts of Namibia. Um, you have people taking in children that are as young as 10 years old to 12 years old to come and work on their farms, mm. either in exchange for a bit of money to help them sub- sustain their families or for maybe access to education, for mm-hmm. instance. Say, okay, work on my farm or you come and take care of my children or you come and babysit my newborn right. and then I send you to school in return. Mm-hmm. So while that looks like it is a noble uh, cause, mm-hmm. it is it is under the fact that you have a child that is laboring in your home or laboring on your land, mm-hmm. in on your farm or whatever, in order to receive something in return, which is then labor. Um, in terms of women, we have a lot of, you know, 
not unpaid. I don't want to say unpaid, but I want to say uh, um, paid very little mm-hmm. doing domestic work mm-hmm. for 1,500. Relates is about 15, should I say 15? Mm-hmm. No, maybe 150 years. I'm not sure. But uh, for that amount, every single month, then they have to go back and look after their families on these little to no wages, um, trying to, you know, get everybody through school with these small amounts of money. So, of course, a few years ago, the government had introduced a minimum wage for domestic workers and for um, contract laborers. But there is still so much of it that is un un watched it it just goes on without anybody doing anything about it because uh you would rather choose somebody giving you a little bit of money than you having no money at all and since there's no enforcement of these laws everybody just does as they please so it's very easy to exploit women and children in this way it's very easy to exploit not even not only women and children but also people that come from um less privileged backgrounds people from marginalized groups okay. um, people who are and 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 can't access other opportunities they would rather get anything that they can than not have anything at all so yeah so what's the minimum the minimum wage in in your country what what is what is it like what do what is the minimum wage it's 1500 dollars I, I want to convert it quickly just hold on right. <laughs> 1500 <laughs> just so you have an understanding cuz you know here in the state well it depends on where you are in the state uh, minimum wage varies you know anywhere from 15 to 18 to 20 dollars just depending on where you're living in the states so i'm curious to, to 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 hear what the minimum wage is like in in Namibia. is that per hour or is that per, per hour per hour <laughs> per hour so per hour. okay that <laughs> yes per hour okay i've managed to convert it it's like 84 dollars per month 84 dollars per month wait 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 84 dollars yeah. a month a month so not not even an hour not even a day a month. Not an hour, a month. Wow. And, you know, in, in, in listening, in, in hearing that, you know, and I believe strongly that is one of the reasons why we also need a centralized, a unified Africa. Because mm. a country like, a continent like Africa that has more than half the world resources, right? We see mm. France, we see well, Europe, we see America, we see China. Everyone is coming to Africa to extract its natural resources, the wealth, the land, because land is valuable. You know, you know whatever is in the land can, can make you rich. And we, we see, for me, in, in looking at Garvey's vision, it is important that we as black people, yes, we are all culturally different um, in, in Africa, but that shouldn't stop a unified, centralized continent to unify under one umbrella. Because some of those issues mm-hmm. in terms of minimum wage and, and, and so forth can be addressed properly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Namibia is a rich country in terms of its natural resources, um, so to speak, and in terms of its wildlife. It, it's, it's, it's shocking. I mean, minimum wage... A month, $80. And, you know, maybe $80 is a lot of money in Namibia. I, you know, I've never, you know, traveled to that part of the world to know. 
but I do know that no, nope. it's not. It's not. You're like, nope, nope. It's not. You <laughs> <laughs> see, I do know that here in the West, and I think people need to understand. Even though we live in a so-called modern country, costs of living is tremendously mm. expensive here in the West, and I think with capitalism and the greed of of this world and the greed of Western capitalism, even when you live mm-hmm. in the States, you live in the United States, you are constantly mm-hmm. working and people are under the false mm-hmm. impression just because you're in the, the United States, life is good. But keep in mind, mm-hmm. people are barely surviving here in the States from paycheck to mm-hmm. paycheck. And mm-hmm. in addition to that, we see one of the, the biggest expenses most people pay is rent or mortgage. Um, but, mm. you know, people are here to, to, they're living off what we call credit. And I don't think that's a good, a good way to live your life because you're in debt to someone else. But it's, it's, it's shocking to hear, you know, to hear what you're saying in terms of per month, not a hour, not a day, $83 plus a month. That is, that is crazy. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. I, I thought you was going to tell me, you know, an hour or so, but, you know, you said a month, not, not a day. You said a month, a whole month. Yeah. So people mm. have to wait a whole month, work a whole month mm. to get $83. Imagine. Wow. Imagine. Wow, wow. Now, you identify yourself as a radical feminist and also as a queer black woman, right? Explain to our listening audience those terms and what has transformed your thinking, beliefs, and stance to identify as such. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, I think especially identifying as a radical feminist, um, Somewhere along the line, somebody introduced me to Roxane Gay and to Bell Hooks and to, um, I, can't, I forgot the name now, uh, Tony Morrison. Okay. And all of these wonderful black authors. Mm-hmm. And okay, they have com- my views on how I identify as a woman and how I show up as a woman. And also the unapologeticness that they take up the label feminist, mm-hmm. um, especially with rock gay. Um, and seeing as how the word even today has been changed into this almost when somebody refers to you as a feminist, it's, it's, it has this negative undertone, this, right, oh right. no, she's a feminist. She's one of those, you know, she, you know, you can't, you can't walk up to her. She, she's got to tell you a whole lot of this, that, and the third. But especially with radical feminism is that unapologeticness in the way that you show up in the world, unapologeticness in your feminism, in the way that you speak mm-hmm. and defend women and defend their rights and defend what is right and what is wrong and speak up for others that are not able to do so for themselves and not being afraid to use your voice on whatever platform it may be, whether people agree with what they, you are saying and whether they're comfortable or uncomfortable or whatever it is and for me especially making people uncomfortable is is something that I always especially when I'm speaking about feminism mm. or my experience as a black woman 
in Namibia. The aim is to always make people shake as far and as wide as possible because wow. that is how you improve in people's minds. That is how you you make history in, in, all, in all actual fact because you cannot make history you cannot change systems by being nice and being you know diplomatic and right, asking right. people for your right, right. Very kind. you need to be strong about what you're saying you need to be unapologetic about what you're saying you need to be consistent and it should not just be a thing of i've done it i'm done it should be this plight that, that is in you that you carry with you um for your entire life and you continue to live in that radicalness and your existence itself must prove um, some sort of uh, protest. It must be a protest to whatever anybody else is is, is proposing to you and telling you that this is how you should be. Uh, for me, especially my existence, I think is, is always in contradiction to what people think a black African woman is supposed to be. Um, so, yes, <laughs> as a queer woman, of course, I identify as a queer woman and I've been or I've been comfortable in my sexuality as I was 16 when I came out to everybody and I said, OK, this is who I identify as. I'm a bisexual black woman. And now the question is always because I'm also in a lot of public spaces and, right. I'm, you know, leading a national students organization and I speak and I do a lot of work in entrepreneurship and this and that and the third. Um, there's also this almost question of whether or not you're going to hide your sexuality because you're afraid that maybe other people are not comfortable with it or other people will not see it as a as a good thing or, you know, where people don't want to be associated with you or your business because of who you identify as. And for me, it's very important to make sure that I'm not hiding any parts of myself in order to conform to capitalism right. or in order to conform to it sort of ideas that you think is, and I go back again to this notion of what people think a black African woman is supposed to be. So, um, you know, even holding on to those titles and, you know, carrying them with pride is very important to me because you do not want to move in this world, always hiding parts of yourself, always seeing which part I can present, which part can I not present? Should I speak? Should I be quiet? How should I behave myself in this way? But to always show up as your most authentic and unapologetic self in every single space that you come into. You know, that's, that, that is a really a beautiful, beautiful response. And as I, as I listen to you talk, um, showing up being unapologetic for who you are and your job <laughs> is to make people uncomfortable um, you know, in, in a sense, in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. And as I hear you speak, I, I start reflecting on who I am as, as a black man living in the United States. And I've always tell my students and anyone that is around me, whenever I make white folks uncomfortable, that means I'm doing my yeah. job. And so... so, <laughs> so and so I, I, I listen to you and I, I, you know, I begin to smile because I think that if we are going to change the world, we cannot be diplomatic. We cannot follow the, 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 the framework in which whomever is telling us this is the way we ought to do this in order to accomplish, especially when it is those who are trying to oppress or deny who we are and who you are as an individual. So I thought that your, your, your response was quite beautiful, was quite elegant, and I, I appreciate your response. Now, to 
turn that around, right? As a radical feminist and also as a queer black woman, how does that support the cause of true liberation for black people collectively? And does feminism jeopardize the structure of the traditional? Let me answer the second part <laughs> first. <laughs> I do not think feminist, uh, feminism destroys the black family or destroys the structure of the black family. In fact, I think feminism enhances it and okay. allows us in our families to see one another as people and mm-hmm. not as objects. Okay. To see one another as, um, you know, beings that are present and not just commodities that can be exchanged with another. Mm-hmm. And especially because even the African household, of course, you have your father and your mother and your father is referred to as the head of the household right. and your mother sort of follows your father's, um, you know, lead. And then as the children, you... Um, follow what your parents tell you. Mm -hmm. So I think what, especially for me in my growing up, because my mother was the breadwinner in our family. And for the majority part of my life, my father was, was, did not have a job. So was not earning anything. And I saw firsthand how feminism was able to sort of save us from Mm. a life of um, poverty, so to say, um, because my mother was the one that was working, was the one that is, both my parents are educated, but my mother was the one that was able to make use of her education. And without feminism, that would not have been possible. Okay. So what I think feminism do is even enhance when we both, when both partners in a family have equal access to opportunities, Greg, equal access to payment and economic uh, are able to infiltrate the economy in the same way, does that not bring more home? Does that not bring more for us to share, more for us to have, and more for us to make sure that even our children continue to access even better opportunities than we have? And when we make everybody equal in culture, does that not mean that whoever does what they're best at, you know, because when we look at African culture and the feminism and this is what a man is supposed to do, this is what a woman is supposed to do. For instance, I have a brother that is a chef at my home. He does the most of the cooking. Right. So it's, it's it, feminism also opens us this entire notion of people being able to do what they're passionate about, being able to do what they're talented mm-hmm. um, for so that they can continue to even broaden um, the aspects of the family and, and, you know, bring more home and infiltrate even culture in a different way. Right. Men that are maybe making this are maybe far more talented than and a woman seamstress. It's not, it's just an example that I'm giving. Right, right, and right. then you take you the opportunity because this is not what a man is supposed to do. This is not what a man is supposed to look like. Not knowing that perhaps that is what, this person's calling is, and that is how this person can transform not only his um, home and his family, but transform an entire community mm-hmm. of people simply by the gifts that they were given. So I think there is so much more that feminism can do. And if we could just open our minds to the possibility of it being an aid to what we already have and what we already know, mm-hmm. I think it will bring us to a whole different... Yes. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So, with 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 that explanation you 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 just gave, um, and 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 I understand that you 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 already expand on this earlier by talking about the feminist movement because the feminist movement, um, as you explained earlier, 
was really when white women started to rebel against their men um, because of their domination and subjugation of mm. white women. But when you look at when you look at black history, especially here in the United States, and I would argue probably many parts of the world in Africa where there's a black majority, we see that black men and black women work together because of the common oppression that they face from the minority culture of the world, which is Europeans and white Americans. Um, you know, so I... But the way you, you, you explain it, it, it seems like we're still looking at feminism through Eurocentric lenses once again. Now, my question mm. to you, do you feel that men and women are equal? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just putting this you on the spot there. Great. You know what I mean? <laughs> <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> do I think men and women are equal? Mm -hmm. oh, that's a tough one. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> I would do I think they're equal? I would say yes and no. Okay, go ahead. Because this is this is a um yes in ability to do anything that you um set your heart or mind to. Um yes in the fact that uh, we should allow whoever and whomever, like I say, to access whatever they want to access, as opposed to painting out that this is what women are and this is what men are, this is what women can do, this was this is what men can do. Yes, in the sense that I think men and women should be paid the same for the equal amount of labor. Yes, in the sense that um, in terms of even, like I said again, opportunities, we must all be able to access them on the same level. No, in the sense that, whew, how do I put this now? <laughs> uh, <laughs> to a certain extent, of course, there are, and this is the premise of the majority of people when they're saying men and women cannot be the same. Uh, but people are looking at biological and physiological um, abilities. Um, and then that sort of becomes the center of the conversation. Like in terms of that biological and physiological abilities, I do not think men and women are the same. However, on every other anyway, platform I'm, I'm not, or every other right, but age, I'm not just I'm not just referring to the biological part. Like for instance, I don't consider my um, I don't consider all men are equal. I don't consider that in, in the sense because you have some men that are more intellectually capable than others. That doesn't make okay. them equal, right? Just, yes, just right? Okay. So, you know, um, and, 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 and just on the same thing too, you have some women who are intellectually capable than some men, right? Um, so it, 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 it varies and it, it varies also depend on what level or type of equality are we referring to, right? Are we referring to yeah. equality in the sense that we both went to the same school and, and major in the same degree and so forth, and then we, yeah. we, we leave the institution now and now we're looking for jobs. Should we be paid equally? I'm never going to dispute that, of course. If we yeah. are on the same level yeah. in terms of that, I, I absolutely believe that we should be paid um, the same. But when we look at feminism, when we look at feminism through the lens of Eurocentric and also in the United States, feminism here means that women wants to be completely equal on every aspects with men. And I, I don't buy into that narrative. 
right? You know, when a, when a man breaks into your house or someone breaks into your house and a woman and a man is there, the woman is going to want the man to protect her. Why? Why does she want the man <laughs> to protect her in a sense, right? Um, I, you know, yeah. so we, we have to be careful in how we're defining yes. and analyzing feminism because I honestly yes. don't believe that Men are men and women are equal in the way Eurocentric feminism and American feminism is trying to steer, you know, drive drive the the, the car, so to speak. Yes, there I completely agree with you, <laughs> and I think you've answered that very well. <laughs> <laughs> now. You are you. You said you were influenced earlier by I, I believe you mentioned Toni Morrison and others, right? Um, so you are a writer and you are an author, and you you have a book. Um, you wrote a book. What about us, right? Um, can you give us an insight of the premises of your book and why you wrote it? Okay. Um, so is an anthology and a memoir sort of a combination of the mm -hmm. two I, it was published in 2021 um, I self-published the book myself okay. my book is really centered on my experiences with sexual abuse as mm -hmm. a child um, unfortunately when I was a little girl I was um, sexually abused and raped multiple times and then also growing up of course the book doesn't only touch on my sexual trauma but also mm -hmm. Of course, how I then uh, started to become comfortable in my queerness and comfortable in my voice and everything that I've shared with you today. Right. So that is why I wrote the book, the book titled "What About Us," because they, for me, it felt as though there is this um, group of women, as especially as a sexual assault survivor, mm -hmm. it's almost like one it is done, and people have said they have you know, their stories and the whole thing has blown over. It's almost like it goes, you become part of this unforgotten population mm. and you still have that trauma that you carry with you every right. single day. So many that as a young woman, I cannot partake in or things that I cannot do freely without um, having that fear that mm -hmm. that is always, you know, on top of me, telling me, okay, can do this is where I should be, this is where I should not be. Will this person do this to me? Will this person do this? Can I trust this lover? Can I not trust this lover? Right. So there was this um, what about us? You know, we have experienced so much trauma. We have we are still living with it, trying to heal mm -hmm. from it, but no, there's no light mm -hmm. shown on victims and their stories. Right. You know, you're just part of this statistic, then it, it sort of vanishes away into the into the into the clouds and you are left to deal with what's left of your life. You need to make something of this life, even if nobody else equips you with something. Simultaneously, it's also black women, you know, a lot of our stories are they just go by. We don't right, hear the stories right. of our mothers. They are never they are never put into the center uh, stage. There you no lights are ever shown on, you know, the ordinary black woman. It's very important for us us to be able to tell our stories ourselves. You know, what about us sharing our stories with one another? What about us sharing our stories with whoever it is that can 
that can and wants to listen and then living or learning from one from one another's stories seeing okay this is what my sister has experienced this is what my mother has experienced this is what my auntie has experienced how can we combine these stories and share them with the world and tell them okay here we are and this is how we live and this is how we've experienced life and this is how we love and this is how we heal and this is how we show up to the world this is how we lead and this is how we use our voices for good so that is what the book is about it's a combination of poems and stories um also shedding a light on of course on love on loss on so many other themes as well but the center of it is just this um ability to not wait for mm. people to tell us or us and to not wait for huge publications to say you know let me hear your story or let me publish what you have but it's about taking that ownership of our stories and of our lives and of our ancestries and saying this is who we are this is where we are we are taking a stand so that is really the premise of the book and and what it is about excellent excellent now for those cuz you know i i went online and I was trying to get a copy of the book and I was unable to get a copy of the book. So for those who are here in the United States, right, how could they get a copy of your book, What About Us? Okay. Like I said before, the book is self-published. So uh, the, you know, the, even the printing and the distribution is quite intimate. I do it all myself. Ah, okay. <laughs> so okay. And you would have to do it directly through me. Okay. I can share my number and you can ex- um, contact me, if, uh, ask me for a book, ask me how I can, um, you know, send it. I have sent some copies over to the UK, so it is possible. We've done it before. Um, so I'm going to share my WhatsApp number that is plus 264-81-814-9761. Okay. So that is my WhatsApp number. If you would like a copy, you can um, just contact me via WhatsApp and then I can, we can make the arrangements. The copy is $200 Namibian dollars. I'm not sure how many US dollars that is. I might have to have a look again. Um, but then, of course, couriering fees and so forth would also need to be taken Taking care. into okay. A- okay. Well, that's. Uh, I would definitely love to have a copy of your book and... Um, you know, we, we, we have contacts, so I'm definitely going to try to arrange to see how I can get a copy of your book. Now, we are in August 2023. What is your realistic vision and goals for Namibia? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> My realistic goals, oh, I have so many dreams for Namibia. I hope she does what we dream she mm-hmm. can do. Realistic goals and visions would be definitely, um, Namibia has now become, I'm not sure if you are familiar with green hydrogen, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, modern ways of fuel or the ways that they're experimenting with fuel. I'm not very well versed in that. But um, yes, Namibia is now looking to become a green hydrogen hub. Of, of the continent of Africa. And um, with that, hopefully we can get a lot of investments into the land, a lot of opportunities to education, um, a lot of opportunities to employment as well for the Namibian people. So I hope that comes to pass. And when it does, that it does actually trickle down to the ordinary Namibian. 
Um, other than that, in the next few years, I think Namibia will move towards, of course, also digitalizing a lot of the operations. There's still so many things in Namibia that are done by hand and done by paper. Mm-hmm. It, and I hope we also start to digitalize. And I can see us starting to digitalize in the way that un- other countries are. But my greatest hope or my dream for Namibia, Greg, is that the both the um, sodomy law as well as the abortion law will be repealed and uh, young women will be able to have access to reproductive health care in the ways that they want to. And then also people who would like to, you know, marry uh, whoever they want to would be able to do that. Right. But that take much longer than we envisioned it to but that is that is that is my dream that is i'm holding that one close to my heart and hopefully um it comes to pass in the next few years well with 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 you being a citizen of Namibia, i i think that will definitely come to pass because you have this (laughs) passion in you and you seem quite determined and these are the type of individuals that we want um, in our countries who sees an injustice and who wants to correct that injustice, but just, you know, not just talk about it, but actually is active doing yeah. something um, to change um, mm. a situation for the better. You know, and, you know, mm. I'm glad that you were able to distinguish between um European feminism or American feminism and black feminism in Africa um, and the difference um, that you have just, um, you know, gave us. And I'm truly that you, you know, gave us this opportunity to come on on our platform, unlocking our voices and shed some insight to your country, to Namibia, and also the political, the social and economic issues that your country um, um, face, but I, I see hope um, in your country because, as I, I, I mentioned, you know, 23 years old, and you are doing such great work um, and being um, a part of all these various organizations. So I'm confident that change will come, and the law eventually in the future will be repealed um, um, in the direction that you want your country to go. And, you know, with, with, with that means saying any, any final words that you want to give to our audience here in the States? Okay. What would my final words be? Let me think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, um, I think my final words are, if you are listening to this, thank you so much for listening to this lovely episode. And I would like to say that in whatever you do, make sure that you take up space and you are unapologetic in your approaches, unapologetic in the spaces that you are taking up. And do not let anybody tell you what you can and cannot do, who you are and can, who you can and cannot be. Um, take up your name, take up your pride, take up your ancestry with everything in you and pull everybody around you forward and make sure that there's no child in your family, no woman in your family left behind and that there is a newer and brighter horizon at the end of the day. Um, I wish us all the best of luck (laughs) in everything that we do. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. 
Strive, I want to thank you so much um, for stopping by. We wish you the best of luck, and we hope to catch up again soon in the near future. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for having me, Greg. Have a lovely rest of your day. <laughs> thank you, ma'am. And thanks so much uh, for tuning in to our show. I hope that our conversation with Drive as, um, from Namibia um, has opened up your eyes about that country and its issues and the things that it's going through. Hopefully, now that you have this information, you will start paying more attention to each other and bridging our unity as black people. As African people in Africa and those in the diaspora, we should never let Western values or custom divide us because that is a strategy that has been long played on our people to keep us weak and fragmented. As I have always said, the black diaspora has been and continue to be connected to one another through our history and heritage. Let us, the black diasporas, come together, claim our union across the globe, and the world will hear our convictions. Let's stay connected and keep lifting each other up. Stay tuned for another fascinating episode where we dive deep into another topic that will help unlock the voices of the black diaspora. Thanks so much for listening and have a great rest of your week. If you enjoyed Unlocking Our Voices, recommend us and let's grow our conversations, community, and power. Stay tuned for our next episode and don't forget to sign up for our notifications. Find us on social media at Unlocking Our Voices and on our website at www.unlockingourvoices.com. Thanks for listening and helping to amplify the voices of the Black diasporas.